Hey there, Conquerors, and welcome to episode 134 of the Conquering Columbus podcast. We hope you had a great holiday season with friends and family, and a happy new year if you're listening to this in 2019. We've got a great interview lined up for you today with Mr. Rich Langdale, and we think you'll learn a lot from Inch's insights as both an entrepreneur having founded Digital Storage, Inc., as well as a venture capitalist with NCT Ventures here in Columbus. Before we get to that, I want to take a quick moment, as usual, to thank all the incredible sponsors and supporters here at Conquering Columbus. So I'm going to kick it over to Josh to tell you a little more about our first sponsor, FMX. FMX is a cloud-based facilities maintenance and management software founded and headquartered right here in Columbus, Ohio. There's a lot of competitors in this space, but FMX has made a name for itself, become the fastest-growing facilities maintenance and management software on the market on behalf of its extreme ease of use and tailored-fit approach to its clients. They serve industries ranging from education to property management, manufacturing, fast casual, and more. If you want to check out more, you can go to gofmx.com. Conquering Columbus is also brought to you in part by the Sundown Group. The Sundown Group is an Ohio-based nonprofit helping connect entrepreneurs to everything they need, including investors, mentors, capital, and talent, through business pitch events, workshops, and classes throughout the state, and you can get more information on the web at sundownrundown.org. And our next sponsor is Share. For the rides that you take the most, ride with Share. Share is a new transportation company now driving Columbus. Schedule your ride and Share picks you up at your door with professional drivers and a growing fleet of connected vehicles. Share is now hiring with entry-level management positions available. You can learn more about careers with Share at drivewithshare.com. Finally, if you've ever wondered what it takes to start your own podcast, we're here to help. We're putting together a podcast startup package with our recommendations and some of the key lessons we learned over the past two years of podcasting. You can sign up by heading over to our website, conqueringcolumbus.com. And while you're there, don't forget to give us a like on Facebook and be sure to subscribe and share Conquering Columbus wherever you get your podcasts. All right, Conquerors, let's get the show on the road. You could drop me anywhere on the planet, in any environment, and I might get, you know, my head kicked in in the beginning, but I'll find a way to survive. I'll find a way to get the job done. Yeah, there's a little doubt, but you know what? Once again, I think of that guy in my ear. I think about stepping up to the stage. I think about the challenge. Like, I've lost sometimes, but I've won more than I've lost. And so, like, I bet on me any day. Choosing greatness. Greatness doesn't choose you. You know, you have to choose it. And, yeah, it's hard. I think there was a hunger in me. There was a desire just to make a difference. There was a desire to not just be status quo, a desire to not be average. This is Conquering Columbus. Hey there, Conquerors, and welcome to another episode of Conquering Columbus. Today on the show, we've got Mr. Rich Langdale, and Rich is the managing partner at NCT Ventures, as well as a seasoned entrepreneur and investor. In 1986, while attending The Ohio State University, Rich founded Digital Storage, Inc., also known as DSI, and since that time, he has founded, co-founded, acquired, or invested in several more companies, all under the umbrella of NCT Ventures, and through his capacity as managing partner, he is still actively involved with several portfolio companies. In 2001, Rich helped to found and develop the Center for Entrepreneurship at The Ohio State University, which quickly earned, quickly earned a Tier 1 ranking from Entrepreneur Magazine, and 
Rich has been an executive board member of the Columbus Chamber of Commerce as well as the Columbus Partnership. He's the chairman of the Entrepreneurship Steering Committee and OSU Center for Entrepreneurship, Columbus Technology Council, and Nationwide Children's Hospital. And we're really excited to have him here on the show today. Welcome to Conquering Columbus, Rich. Thanks. Thanks yeah. for having me. Appreciate you finishing Long-time the day. Yeah. Listener, first-time speaker. <laughs> <laughs> well, perfect. I, you know, it's um, we've had only several people say that, so I really appreciate you taking the time to tune in. Uh, but kind of where we like to start with these and uh, is to kick it back and talk a little bit about your path to where you are today. And a lot of that starts, you know, in college and before. So can you talk to us a little bit about life, maybe growing up, and and what brought you to OSU? Great. Uh, so I. Uh, actually was moved here by my family uh, from Southern California in the uh, early days of, of my development. My father's business, interesting, was a hobby ceramic mold business, which are just these big blocks of plaster. And he uh, uh, ended up having a national presence, and he put a, all of his customers on a map and then picked a spot right in the middle of the map that he could service those customers from. And at the time, I didn't think much of it because I was in the sixth grade. But years later, you know, I, I got to college. I start my first business, which was a wholesaler in the computer storage business. And logistics was right in the heart of what we were doing and ended up my father's uh, strategic location, sticking those pins on a map was a, great, was a great starting point for me. What part of Southern California were you in? I was in originally Anaheim. Okay. Los Angeles area, and then I uh, spent some time in Fresno as well, which is all the negatives of California without any, any of the positives. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I, I was just curious because I grew up in San Diego, so oh, yeah. I kind of took a similar path to get here. But So growing up, watching your father create a company, was is there anything monumental that kind of sticks out there that molded you into your path to creating your first organization? Yeah, I think uh, he was always a great mentor because he pushed you to think bigger and and better and and what you did through giving you a hard time (laughs) you know it's like uh, things weren't always good enough and I remember in my early days of watching him build his business uh, he would he would have me go collect paper from the neighborhood and shred the paper to put in his boxes for shipping and he'd have me staple his catalogs together and I kind of got you know, the insider look at all the little facets of, of him growing his business. And then when I started my business and, and started having some early success, and I remember the first year I beat him in revenue, he said, let's take a look at that bottom line, son, not the top line. <laughs> and so he was, he was always very focused on maximizing everything he had going on. But uh, he's a great mentor. Any siblings in that process that you're growing up alongside? So I have a I have kind of a mixed up family. I was an only child growing up with my father. My father remarried and I was the youngest of, of that relationship. <clears throat> so I grew up with a stepbrother. And, and then years later when I was 30, I found out that my biological mother, who I had never met, had six other children. And so I became the oldest. So I've been on every end of that birth order, oldest, youngest, middle child at this point so I, I have lots of siblings but I haven't spent much of my life with any of them were any of them did they, any of them become entrepreneurs yeah my stepbrother actually did uh, build some houses uh, for a while which uh, yeah it's entrepreneurial 
Mm-hmm. Just be kind of interesting to see, you know, siblings that came from the same biological makeup but grew up separated to see if they kind of take a similar path. So I was curious. Yeah, I mean, you definitely see it. I my father was an entrepreneur, my grandfather was an entrepreneur, and you know, my kids all have entrepreneurial tendencies. I think you you kind of see it and you grow up with it. So my stepbrother, when he was growing up with us, I think picked up on that too, and that's probably what made him want to start his own, you know, building company. So you get to Ohio State, and what was your focus then? Like, did you know that you had long-term aspirations to create your own business, or were you heavily focused on academics? Did you know going in, like, maybe I want to leave and be an accountant or something? Yeah, good question. I think it was a path that I didn't completely realize that I was on, and I can always make the story sound better and more thoughtful in hindsight, but the kind of important moments in my life when I was 14 years old, I saw my first hologram. I was at the Toronto World's Fair, and I remember thinking, that is really cool. i got to figure out how to make one of those. And so if you know much about holography, it's, you know, it's using lasers. It's, you have to learn about light. You have to you know, be good at physics. You have to be good at math. And, and luckily, math was a pretty good subject for me. And so I went back and, and started learning everything I could about holography. When I went to college, I went to study holography along the way to get a hold of the laser at Ohio State, you know, which at the time these were hundreds of thousands of dollars devices, you had to have a purpose. You can't say, I want to go make cool holograms with your, your laser. And, and so I came up with a plan to get a hold of that, that uh, basically I was going to use the laser to, to do something more purposeful. And the theory I was working with was computer storage. This is a longer story, and you probably have some more questions, so I'll just say that that whole experience was what helped me create the business of digital storage, which was kind of connecting the dots between what my passion was in holography and what the opportunity was to create a storage company with today's, at the time, was magnetic storage back then when I started my first company. So... Throughout that process, this is all an elaborate scheme so you can make holograms and work your... Make cool pictures. Make That's cool what pictures. I wanted to do. And then you find out, hey, there's something here. Yeah. You know, so it's always interesting, you know, these stories to me because everybody's is a little different and everybody's approach is a little different to how they founded their first business. But when do you make that connection? When do you realize, hey, there's an opportunity here for a real business? Yeah. The connection for me... So I'll, I'll tell you a little more of the story. So at the time, I was a futurist. I was really into uh, Stanley Kubrick, 2001 Space Odyssey had come out. And uh, you guys may be too young for this, but there was a, a scene at the end of the movie where they're kind of pulling out these sheets of glass and they're shutting down this evil computer that's trying to take over the spaceship. And I remember looking at that and being a, a bit of a holographic nerd, thinking that that's the future of storage. They were removing the memory of the computer. And if you think of computer storage, the two most important things are how fast it is and how small it is. And and still through today, using uh, holographic storage, you got the speed of light, you got the wavelength of light, really, really small, really, really fast. So there was an obvious application in computer storage. So at the time, I had just gotten an incomplete my economics course but they had had showed me this supply and demand curve. And on the other side, 
I'm out doing some initial market research trying to figure out if I could create a holographic storage company. And I, you know, done an analysis and I had to raise tens of millions of dollars and uh, was getting a lot of uh, people laughing at me as a, you know, college student trying to raise tens of millions of dollars. But I was able to connect a few dots. One is that uh, computers were going from text-based graphics to a graphical element which used a lot more storage. So there was an obvious trend that there was going to be a lot more storage needed and that the new type of storage at the time was three and a half inch diskettes. There was a lot of uh, demand. There was, you know, Apple computers coming out. It had, the, it had it installed in it. But when you went back and checked with the manufacturers, there wasn't a lot of supply. People weren't making it yet. They hadn't picked up on this trend. And so that, that little economics class, that passion around holographics all connected this dot said, if I could go buy all the three and a half inch diskettes that were being made, and I was right that there was a shortage, that they're probably gonna be worth a lot more, according to the economics class I didn't pass, <laughs> than, <laughs> than what I paid for them. And sure enough, later, uh, three months later, I was the world's largest distributor of three and a half inch diskettes. And that was the beginning of building the world's largest wholesaler of computer storage, which happened over the next several years as kind of the next technology came out and the next technology came out. People just naturally called us because we got the first one right, you know, and it's easier to get the next one right when everybody's <laughs> telling you what it is. Right. <laughs> so there's probably a lot of different uh, phases within that story that we can focus on and kind of get granular on. But the part that's always interesting to me is how entrepreneurs kind of skip over the beginning and I think that's really difficult for some people is to go from zero to one, and then you have people who are more like the one to 100. Right. So you talked a little bit about how you were able to identify using the supply and demand curve kind of what the market opportunity was. How did you go about getting the cash to buy all those? Where did you keep them? Like, what did that process look yeah, like? Yeah, that, that, I love teaching. I, I think you guys know I teach a little bit at Ohio State, and this is one of my favorite parts because it, people do skip over the beginning and it is the most important thing. And it, it's, it's luck, it's uh, you know, little relationships that you didn't realize were uh, important in your life uh, for a future business thing. It's, it's a bunch of different things. But for me, there were a couple breakthroughs. So this one in identifying the opportunity really came from that passion. If you really care about something, you're doing a lot of research, you're probably gonna find that missing element of whatever it is you're passionate about. So I, I think that was a really important thing. The second one was just relentlessly trying to figure out how to go get engaged in the three and a half inch diskette market. So I did research, you know, who has three and a half inch diskettes? So I actually worked at the time at Micro Center, which was a local computer retailer. And I went to an Apple training course because we were learning about Apple computers. And I remember getting with the Apple people and saying, you know, who's everybody buying your computers? I want to know your distributors. I want to know your partners. And being able to just kind of dig in and use all the relationships that are around, I was able to figure out who, was, who the distributors were that might be customers. I was able to figure out who the manufacturers were of three and a half inch diskettes. And I literally called them up without an ability to pay for them and placed the orders. So that that left that part out because there wasn't anything to say. I did not have the money to do it. I had a Honda Prelude, uh, which I sold for $5,000. 
at the time, you could actually get bank debt. You, you can't get it anymore as an entrepreneur, but I was able to take that, put it in a bank account, and get a seven to one lending ratio. Uh, so they gave me a $35,000 line of credit against that, that money in the bank. And I was able to pay for some of the inventory to get it moving, but I really had to go on the other side and get customers to prepay me. So there's two more things that came out of that. One is my roommate in college ended up being from Venezuela. His father was with the Venezuelan government, and he was one of my very first customers. And what I learned is international customers were willing to prepay and wait for products. And, and so my company very quickly shifted into international, which at the time was a fluke, but it turned into most of my business over the first 10 years was, was overseas. And, uh, and it was because of that willingness to prepay. And then I have a second story around a, a guy I call Papa Rhinebeck, but um, it was a mistake on a vendor pricing and a cheesy looking flyer that showed up in Bodegrave in Holland and the largest distributor of computer products in Holland called me up, came over. We had a, a couple days of bonding and getting to know each other and he ended up uh, prepaying and, and placing some very significant orders on the business very early on too. So just luck and being there. So, so you're taking these orders and then you just turn around and hustling on the back end to find, oh, yeah. to fill these in and say, okay, what, you're just trying to maximize profit at that point. You've got the cash, you know what you need and you're just going for, I mean, what's that process look like? Are you calling around to everybody in the States going, hey, you have any of these discs? What's going on? What's the price? Is it? Yeah. So. It was a lot of that. So I was actually selling what was generally called bulk diskettes. So they didn't have someone's name on it at the very beginning. <clears throat> so I was going to the manufacturer that then sold to reputable brands like 3M, Sony. So there was a company called Shape. Shape made the product. They sold it to a lot of other people. So just kind of finding that resource and buying the product before it even got shipped to the reputable brands and then uh, providing it in a bulk form. So it just literally was a white box with 10 diskettes in it and we would package them ourselves and we'd sell them as white box product or bulk product in, in the early days. As things developed, um, you know, people wanted to buy a lot more branded products. So you would figure out what people were willing to pay and you'd try to find some way to get the product at that price and that early break of selling so many three and a half inch diskettes in that first three months because I had supply when there was a lot of demand and other people didn't just drove a lot of people to put orders in us. And if I had orders and they were willing to prepay, I could often negotiate the price that I needed to. So you fast forward through that process and things start to develop and uh, they're growing. What year do you start to look at a different type of business model than what you are currently doing or look for an exit? Boy, it was a long time later. Um, but what happened was building a wholesale computer storage business was a big, complicated, and fun job. So the initial days were a lot of what we were just describing, finding the next customer building the next capability, building a little more sales force, building a little bigger warehouse, building distribution. But this international footprint was very important. So I ended up with offices in Europe, 
then Latin America, then throughout the Pacific Rim. And being customer centric, you had to you know, service people in their local languages. You had to uh, be able to get the product to them efficiently. And what we were really developing over time was a worldwide footprint of marketing and logistics capabilities. Because if you think about it, our customers on one side were Sony, IBM, Hewlett Packard, great brands, great companies. And on the other side, they were retailers and resellers of computer supplies and computers. And if we were going to survive in there, we had to offer a service that was better than these entities could do together directly. And, and the only place that you can really stake out that middle ground is to be the most efficient marketing company in the world and the most efficient logistics company in the world. So that's what we spent every day trying to be. Eventually, we got to a point where we could reach just about anywhere in the globe in a 24-hour delivery. And that footprint ended up being really valuable in other products and services outside of computer supplies. So in the kind of mid to late 90s, it wasn't an exit yet, but it was kind of a divergence. Um, ended up starting eight more companies, thematically marketing technology companies and logistics technology companies to, to continue to take advantage of that trend with the same partners. Mm -hmm. So you get to the point, before you spin out the eight, what's the size of the business at that point in terms of employees? So we would have been about 250 million in revenue and 150 or so associates around the globe. So I mean, large scale, did you find any challenges in building a team that large and like trying to manage things when they got to that magnitude? Yes. <laughs> there, the, and, and I think, you know, having built lots of companies and invested in lots of companies now, I, I kind of I bring it back and, and think of it in stages. When you're first growing your team up until about 20 people, you, you can have lunch with everybody once a month. Everybody can be in the same meeting. You can have a lot of solid communications. And I think that's a really healthy stage for a company. And, and then as you go from about 20 to about 50 people, you start to realize that you can't meet with everybody every day. And you have to you know, create, hopefully not silos, but you know, functioning areas that can operate separately and independently and still have that you know, small company attitude. We always said, if you stop thinking like a small company, you'll become a small company. So we, we kept trying to you know, create these pockets. And I think 20 to 50 was the next big stage. And, and then there was another kind of big leap as you went from 50 to 150-ish where you, you, had to, you had to create these you know, layers of a company. And you know, every layer, you lose some communication, you lose some efficiencies. So getting that right. So those were the kind of the stages that we learned about and we think a lot. And today when we scale companies, we, we spend a lot of time thinking about what we call a chunk of business, which is you know, independently a certain amount of revenue that a kind of world-class team can focus on as a group. And there's a certain amount of salespeople and maybe logistics and accounting and whatever. Uh, and so when you scale a business, instead of thinking of it as I'm going to go from 10 million to 100 million, what does that look like? Uh, you know, at 10 million, that's 13 people. So at 100 million, that's 130 people. Here's exactly the 13 people we need to hire when we go from 10 people to 20 people. 
And once we got good at that, in 1999, we actually hired 1,000 people in three months. Uh, and scaling at that pace, uh, you just can't do if you don't understand exactly what that chunk looks like. Yeah, Mike and I are trying to hire two people by quarter one of next year. I think you, <laughs> you, <laughs> we're having hard enough time with that. Yeah. Put things in perspective. Well, yeah, Columbus <laughs> is a tough market right now to find good people, so I, I feel your pain. So you, you spin it out into eight, and then there's still a few more years there. What does that path unravel into? Yeah. So as you might imagine, you can fool yourself about – uh, how much time you spend in a business and how profitable a business really is when you're trying to manage several businesses under you know some kind of entity or umbrella. And so I got some good advice uh, through, I, was, I got involved with uh, the Young Presidents Organization when I was fairly young. Some local business folks grabbed me and told me I wasn't as smart as I thought I was and that I needed some good advice. And they were right, and it was true, and it was very helpful. Uh, but what that taught me was what's generally called activity-based costing, but thinking of each company as a standalone, thinking of each allocation of the uh, team that was launching those companies, so myself and now the partners of NCT, the core team of NCT, we were making the transition from operators to being an investment operating company and, and trying to really be fair and accurate about what our what our cost burden should be on each of those companies and what the real profitability of each of those companies would be. So we spent kind of four or five years perfecting that. And then the late 90s came, and actually that same group of friends through the YPO said, hey, Rich, you know you can actually sell companies. You don't have to hoard them. <laughs> and so in the late 90s, ended up selling a lot of those companies. And in hindsight, you know, that was a great time to be selling companies. I wish I could tell you I was smart enough to predict what was going to happen next, but the economy went into a bit of a tailspin, and then it was a great time to be buying companies, and I just sold a bunch of companies, so I had a, a pile of cash, and, and that was part of becoming a venture capitalist, which uh, kind of a five-year transition between those two moments. And so when does it you actually make the transition from, say, you know, that umbrella company kind of investing? When does NCT Ventures come out yeah. into the world? So at the time that we started the second and third company, they were mm -hmm. kind of getting started, the NCT Ventures came out. That right. we, we moved, we created that investment operating company. It was really to think of that activity-based accounting, to think of attributing the right cost in the right companies. And we called it NCT back then because the theory, uh, you know, it was supposed to be a secret, but we've been outed enough times. We just call it out now. It's next cool thing. Uh, is what NCT stood for, and, and that's what we were trying to do. We were trying to do whatever was next, whatever uh, an, another saying we had. If anybody's going to put us out of business, it's going to be us. So, you know, we'd always look at where our weak spots were, and we'd go after our own weak spots by starting the next business ourselves. So in early 2000s, or maybe it was uh, maybe like 2001, 2002, when you start buying these companies, what are, what are the most significant parts that stick out to you as you look back in that story? Because obviously, when you're talking about multiple companies in once, like you could probably dive into really in-depth, elaborate stories on each one of your experiences throughout there. But are the things that you look back on and really reflect on and say it was a pivotal moment and things continuing to go the right way or um, even things that maybe you think went wrong? Yeah. So I, I think a, a couple things on the things that went wrong scale. 
we did not spend enough time in the early days thinking about total addressable market. You know, how big is this opportunity? We didn't spend enough time thinking about how profitable is this market. We didn't spend enough time thinking about how competitive is this market. You know, what, what kind of headwinds are we going to be bouncing up against? And there were a lot of little sub things that you learn along the way about, you know, bad debt or, you know, one thing that, you know, became apparent through an investment in a agency business is when you invest in a business that has a lot of similar businesses in the, in the neighborhood, uh, it's hard to have kind of mutual loyalty with your associates. They bounce around. And so we started to create this list of things we did that was stupid. And, uh, and so all of those were, were key learnings for us is that, you know, we should make sure if we're going to spend all the time in building a business, it might as well be a big market, might as well be a profitable market, might as well not have a lot of competition, a lot of headwinds. Uh, it might as well not have a lot of similar looking businesses in the neighborhood. And, uh, and, and you kind of start to sort out what a, what a bad business looks like through that experience. On the good side, I think the thing that still sticks out to me today is the most important is in, instead of picking businesses and markets that are binary, this technology is going to work or it's not going to work. We like to look at big worldly trends, you know, so we know today the energy grid, you know, has to be replaced. And so instead of trying to pick the right solar company or the right liquefied natural gas company, we tend to look at what does everything in the new energy grid going to rely on. And you kind of take that back to the word platforms. And, and so if you look across our investments thematically, you'll see a lot of what we would consider to be platform investments, technologies that everybody in a changing industry might rely on instead of trying to pick the one company that's going to win in a space that has 100 companies competing. And I think that's probably the biggest learning on the other side. So you mentioned 2000 was obviously a downtime in the economy. When you were buying business up until 2008, how did that affect you and your team? Hmm. Well, we took a couple years off. <laughs> uh, there was there was a time where you know we just we had just had a bunch of exits. There was actually an interesting you know kind of point in our lives where uh, we you know some of us thought we were retiring. I got involved, at, you know, funded and built that Center for Entrepreneurship at Ohio State as something to do, and I got involved with a lot of economic development initiatives around Columbus, so the Chamber of Commerce and uh, the early days of the Columbus Partnership. And, and uh, you know, we brought in McKinsey and we did all this research about what would it take to make Columbus a, a world-class city, you know, number one in the world. And uh, uh, at the time, we were very far from it. The roadmap is, you know, pretty simple. You, you gotta have innovation, you gotta have talent, and you gotta have capital. And if you look statistically, we got a crap load of innovation around here. Ohio State's got a billion dollars a year of research. Battelle's the world's largest private research institution. Uh, we've got Nationwide Children's Hospital. A lot of our uh, companies in the region are very innovative. You look at a Cardinal Health or a Worthington Industries or a Nationwide Insurance or a Huntington Bank. And, and so you kind of add all that up. It's like, we got plenty of innovation. Talent, uh, Ohio State, 
is a is an incubator for talent, uh, but it wasn't harnessed. You know, we were one of the few big universities that didn't have a center for entrepreneurship, which is one of the reasons why I ended up launching that and and funding that initiative. And, and then you kind of get to that last thing, capital, and. I just assumed, and I think we all did, that people would get on airplanes and fly to Columbus if we got the first two right. But what we learned is they don't. People do not fly to Columbus, Ohio, or any other place outside of three zip codes where most of the venture capital in the, in the U.S. lies unless a company has already made a huge amount of progress and needs tens of millions of dollars. So that incubation stage you have to do yourself. I'm not even sure if I'm answering your question anymore, but this all led <laughs> to the creation. I think of, I forgot the question. So we're doing good. I'm interested. I'm still interested. <laughs> this all led to the creation of NCT Venture. So yeah, I think your original question was around you know what was that grappling period in the in the transition between the downtime of the economy. We used that time to kind of think about uh, where where the best next place to spend our time and effort would be. And as we were playing around with these economic development initiatives, it became really apparent that if you created a capital entity and you combined it with the innovation and you really harnessed the talent that was already coming to Ohio State, you could do something really amazing. And you fast forward to today um, and you look at, and I don't know if you guys uh, spend time with Columbus 2020 or the folks over there, but you know, hop on their website and, and look at you know, Columbus is first and best in almost everything we want to be first and best in now. And we're just getting started. I mean, we are, we are an amazing place right now as a city. And I think it's because of the efforts of that, you know, group of people sitting around in the early days thinking about how do you do this right? Yeah. And, you know, I really talk about this a lot on the podcast, but I, you know, I grew up in San Diego, came out here for college, right? Mm -hmm. And if you would have told me when I was 16 years old that I would have gone to college in Ohio and stayed. <laughs> After I left, I would have looked right. at you like you're insane. Yep. But that's exactly why I stayed is because I felt, you know, you could feel it. When you're mm -hmm. here in the city, the growth and the, and the mindset and the community kind of has a chip on its shoulder, you know, yeah. in terms of we're going to be the best and we don't care what San Francisco or D.C. or New York say. Yep. Um, do you think that today it's still difficult to get those other venture, like, you know, like, so you mentioned earlier, a lot of venture capital resides in three zip codes. Are we still having a hard time getting them to come out to Columbus and, and look at companies, or are we starting to shift that dial? Yeah, it's, it's getting a ton easier. And, and so if, if I think back in the very first venture fund that we started in 2008, it was really hard to get co-investors. You know, today we have 62 co-investors and a lot of meaningful funds that have co-invested with us. And, and the path that we took as a city is – is now pretty well documented. Harvard actually did a case study on it called the Columbus Way. I mean, we, you know, it's really that special of an event where it's being studied by other cities, you know, the, the path that we took. And, you know, because of all of that, combined with, you know, just great entrepreneurs doing great things in the city, you know, having a billion dollar exit with Cover My Meds, which, uh, you know, that team is just an amazing, amazing group of entrepreneurs. And uh, you know, that uh, is you know, one of the many steps towards you know, putting a city like Columbus on the map. And it is now much easier than it's ever been before, but we still have some room to go. 
to get people to you know fly to Columbus, co-invest with us, you know better yet put up a shingle here. So it was really cool. I think one of the greatest success stories of, of all this effort was having a couple people from Sequoia move out here and set up shop with Drive Capital. I think it's a it's a great feather in Columbus's cap and a testament to a lot of the hard work that was done. And uh, we'd like to see more of that. So fast forward to today, what are the professional and personal aspirations look like? I mean, you've accomplished an amazing amount throughout your career. You've uh, spent a lot of time giving back, getting involved in the community. What kind of drives you and keeps you moving forward today? I think the coolest thing about venture is that almost everything that you invest in can have a purpose. You know, a lot of venture folks may think about that or may not, but we certainly do. We, we think about our investments, improving people's lives, saving people's lives. Uh, it, 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 is, it is a great thing to be able to wake up every day and do something you really enjoy and hang out with a group of amazing entrepreneurs who actually have a much bigger vision than making money. Uh, if you look across our portfolio and you talk to any of the entrepreneurs that we're invested in, they can tell you a, a real purpose that they're getting up for every day that has very little to do with making money. But if you do that well, you generally end up making money along the way too. So I think that's rewarding. Uh, I can't imagine doing anything else. Um, uh, one of my you know, heroes growing up in the venture industry was uh, uh, Morgan Thaler. And uh, you know, he was at 90 plus years old going into the office every day and still challenging everybody to think about it. I'd love to be like that. <laughs> I'd, love to, <laughs> I'd love to have my brain sharp enough and uh, uh, you know, be around enough smart people that can think about today's problems and, and be thinking about this many years in the future. Perfect, perfect. And then in terms of you know, maybe growth, and this will probably be one of our last questions of the show. But in terms of growth for the team and, you know, next five to ten years as, as an organization for NCT Ventures, do you guys have those goals thought out five to ten years from now? Do you have personal goals within those? Yeah, it, it's interesting. We, we challenge every uh, company that we're invested in to put those strategic plans together and have five-year plans, and we do it ourselves. You know, we, we take the time to do it. I would say that, you know, the venture capital business is a, a business that you can grow in a lot of different directions. And we have not challenged ourselves to grow too far out of just being exceptional here in the Midwest because we really like what we're doing and we really like having the opportunity to have an impact. And so this, the scale and the size of that doesn't change dramatically. You know, we, we're closing our third fund here soon. We're hiring a couple more full-time people that'll be exciting but you know we're going from seven to nine you know <laughs> it's not it's not a, a big business in and of itself for venture capital well don't take our two people because we yeah <laughs> we <laughs> we know there's not those. many out there we we're, we're running low we need those two people i had, I had an offer letter for you guys today <laughs> <laughs> well uh I think that's a good place, Rich, to pivot into our last question of the show. It's centered on the theme mm-hmm. here on Conquering Columbus, and we chose Live Uncomfortably mm-hmm. as that theme. And, and without telling you too much about why we chose that, what do you think of when you hear the phrase, and how do you apply it to your life? Yeah, so when I heard that, um, I 
immediately thought that that's what your life is as an entrepreneur and a venture capitalist. And you have to be comfortable with ambiguity and change. And so I'd, I'd say that, you know, we talked right before we got started here. I love the theme of conquering. I love this theme as well because that, that really is the core of innovation is you, you, have to, you have to think of change as something good and even if it just kicked your ass, you know, what are you going to do differently because of that? And I think of many of the, the greatest breakthroughs and greatest rewards in our life have, have come from just embracing that uncomfortable change. Perfect. Well, Rich, that's a great answer, and we really appreciate you taking the time to join us here on the show. Great. Thank you, guys. Yeah, and Conquerors, thanks for tuning in. That was Rich Langdale, and he is a managing partner over at NCT Ventures. Hope you guys enjoyed that episode and learned a lot. We'll talk to you next week. Hey, Conquerors, that's it for the episode today. Hope you guys enjoyed that episode and learned a lot. If you did, make sure to leave a like. Share us on Facebook with your friends. We really appreciate all your support. And every time you share our podcast or leave a review on iTunes, it really does help us out. Before we let you go, we want to take one last moment to thank all of our incredible sponsors here. And that's going to start with FMX. FMX is a cloud-based facilities maintenance and management software founded and headquartered right here in Columbus, Ohio. There's a lot of competitors in this space, but FMX has made a name for itself, become the fastest-growing facilities maintenance and management software on the market on behalf of its extreme ease of use and tailored-fit approach to its clients. They serve industries ranging from education to property management, manufacturing, fast casual, and more. If you want to check out more, you can go to gofmx.com. Conquering Columbus is also brought to you in part by the Sundown Group. The Sundown Group is an Ohio-based nonprofit helping connect entrepreneurs to everything they need, including investors, mentors, capital, and talent through business pitch events, workshops, and classes throughout the state. And you can get more information on the web at sundownrundown.org. And our next sponsor is Share. For the rides that you take the most, ride with Share. Share is a new transportation company now driving Columbus. Schedule your ride and Share picks you up at your door with professional drivers and a growing fleet of connected vehicles. Share is now hiring with entry-level management positions available. You can learn more about careers with Share at drivewithshare.com. Finally, if you've ever wondered what it takes to start your own podcast, we're here to help. We're putting together a podcast startup package with our recommendations and some of the key lessons we learned over the past two years of podcasting. You can sign up by heading over to our website, conqueringcolumbus.com. And while you're there, don't forget to give us a like on Facebook, and be sure to subscribe and share Conquering Columbus wherever you get your podcasts. You could drop me anywhere on the planet, in any environment, and I might get you know, my head kicked in in the beginning, but I'll find a way to survive. I'll find a way to get the job done. Yeah, there's a little doubt, but you know what? Once again, I think of that guy in my ear. I think about stepping up to the stage. I think about the challenge. Like, I've lost sometimes, but I've won more than I've lost. And so, like, I bet on me any day. Choosing greatness. Greatness doesn't choose you. You know, you have to choose it. And, yeah, it's hard. I think there was a hunger in me. There was a desire just to make a difference. There was a desire to not just be status quo, a desire to not be average. This is Conquering Columbus.